through 6 and 10 through 20, and chapter 15, verses 14 through 20. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and he told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now go get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among all our people that you, that you must go to take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. Then Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. But he did not tell his father or his mother what he had done. His father went down to the woman, and Samson prepared a feast there, for so the young for so the young men used to do. As soon as the people saw him, they brought 30 companions to be with him. And Samson said to them, let me now put a riddle to you. If you can tell me what it is within the seven days of the feast and find it out, then I will give you 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. But if you cannot tell me what it is, then you shall give me 30 linen garments and 30 changes of clothes. And they said to him, put your riddle that we may hear it. And he said to them, Out of the eater came something to eat, out of the strong came something sweet. And in three days they could not solve the riddle. On the fourth day they said to Samson's wife, Entice your husband to tell us what the riddle is, lest we burn you and your father's house with fire. Have you invited us here to impoverish us? And Samson's wife wept over him and said, You only hate me. You do not love me. You have put a riddle to my people, and you have not told me what it is. And he said to her, Behold, I have not told my father or my mother, and shall I tell you? She wept before him the seven days in their feast, that their feast lasted. And on the seventh day he told her, because she pressed him hard. Then she told the riddle to her people. And the men of the city said to him on the seventh day before the sun went down, What is sweeter than honey? What is stronger than a lion? And he said to them, If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out my riddle. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and he went down to Ashkelon and struck down thirty men of the town and took their spoil and gave the garments to those who had, took, who had told the riddle. In hot anger, he went back to his father's house, and Samson's wife was given to his companion, who had been his best man. <clears throat> when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire, and his bonds melted off his hands. And he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it, and with it he struck one thousand men. And Samson said, With the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps with the jawbone of a donkey, have I struck down a thousand men. As soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand, and that place was called Ramoth-Lehi. 
And he was very thirsty, and he called upon the Lord and said, You have granted this great salvation by the hand of your servant, and shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came out from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned and he revived. Therefore, the name of it was called En Hakor. It is at Lehi to this day. And he judged Israel in the days of the Philistines 20 years. I think we've been all, we're probably all aware of the, um, the expression, uh, don't judge a book by its cover. We know what it means. I mean, it simply is a warning over uh, making assumptions about people and looking or seeing what they do or or maybe where they are, and, and you make all these assumptions, and oftentimes uh, you go to all kinds of places that aren't true. It ends up hurting people that uh, you may love. It, uh, it hurts your relationship with them. It, it, it hurts you. And when you combine our tendency to make assumptions with people along with our tendency to think ill of people, then it really can bring some shame and hardship on relationships. I think this is what the case has happened with Samson. Uh, you know, when you look at the story of Samson and you listen to the sermons and you read the material, you get a picture of somebody that's a womanizer. Uh, uh, one sermon title was classic. It was uh, Samson colon the playboy. Uh, you get someone that's accused of being hot-headed and angry and self-indulgent and uncontrolled. You get all these kind of uh, expressions and descriptions of them that you really think this guy is a zero for sure. And uh, is that the case? I mean, that's what the observations many people make on his life. I just want to warn us that, you know, they made the same observations about Jesus Christ. They said he was uh, a wine-bibber, he was a glutton, they saw him hanging around with prostitutes. What's he doing with a bunch of prostitutes? They see him at parties, he's drinking wine, he's a drunk, <clears throat> he's at feasts, he's a glutton. They made these they took these observations of Jesus and they began to draw out their own conclusions to them. I don't want to do that with Samson. You know, it, Samson, it tends to be, <clears throat> you know, the question is why such divergent views? You have some people who look at Samson as kind of the Israelite Tarzan the playboy, and a very negative view of these judges. And then you have others, the guy you're looking at, who looks at him like a hero, a prefigurement of Christ. Now, when I was going in this direction, Carol said to me, oh, I'm nervous for you. Nobody's going to agree with you, which makes me kind of excited, really. And, uh, but there's two views. One's positive and one's negative. Now, let me explain why we have two views. It's really wrapped up in how you look at the book of Judges. I know right now you're thinking, he's going to try to make good out of Samson? All his foul-ups and misfits? Well, it's the way you look at the book of Judges. If you look at the book of Judges, the final chapters, 17 to 21, as kind of the cesspool of their morality, that everything is kind of you know, making this downward trajectory, to this moral abyss, then, then Samson's the last judge, he's the worst one. It's got to all mean that he's just a, a moral rogue. 
Remember now, Judges, the first two chapters are two introductions, and 17 to 21 are two epilogues. The negative view comes, as you look at these epilogues, as not a summary of, Samson, uh, uh, not a summary of the people of Israel, but a culmination. This is how it all ends. And so Samson being at the end of the road, he and the people have just gone off rail in terms of being faithful to God. Samson becomes a picture of kind of Israel, lost, forsaken of God, steeped in idolatry. So that, that's the one view. That's where most people end. That's the common view, a negative view of these judges. Okay, the positive view looks at the judges through the window that we're given in chapter 2. In chapter 2, we're given this window of what these judges are as God has raised them to be. So in chapter 2, verse 16, we read, Then the Lord raised up judges, who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they, that is the people, whored after other gods and bowed down to them. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. So you're given a different perspective on judge. These judges, God is with them. God has raised them. They're like God's representatives. They're like light in a sea of darkness, the people whoring after other gods. But these judges, according to Amos 2.11, they were like prophets. They're calling the people back. They're saying, forsake the idolatry, pursue the Lord your God. I, I, I think this view helps us make sense of what we know about Samson. I mean, Samson was the only judge miraculously born. He's the last judge. He's the final judge. He's the only judge that lays down his life for the people. He's... The Spirit is rushing upon him more than any other judge. He has the bulk of the material. And not just do I think judges take a positive view of the judges, but then we see that also in the New Testament. We see in Hebrews, in Hebrews 11 we read, And what more shall I say? For time will fail me if I tell you of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, and David and Samuel, and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, Obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, Samson, quench the power of the fire, escape the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, Samson, became mighty in war, Samson, fought, put foreign armies to flight, others suffered mocking and flogging, and even chains and imprisonment, Samson, they were stoned, they were sawn in two, they were killed with the sword, they went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. This is Samson. Not just that, and I, I don't, you know, none of us like name droppers, right? But let me drop a few names. So you got Martin Luther, you got John Calvin, you have Jonathan Edwards, you have John Milton, you have Charles Spurgeon. They all took favorable views of Samson. Just saying. <laughs> I'm not ready to go up against those men. So here's what I want to do. I want to try to take a fresh look at Samson and show you why he's in Hebrews 11, frankly. He's miraculously born by God to save Israel. That's what we learned in chapter 13.5. In 13.5, he was birthed to bring judgment to the Philistines. Samson was brought forth to kill Philistines 
as a means of judgment against their wickedness. Now, I can't explain everything. There is no author that I read that can explain all the details of, of these stories in chapter 14 and 15. But here's what I do say. I see first that God called him to serve in ministry and gave him the spirit to confirm it. That's the first thing we'll say. The second thing we'll see is that God used Samson in judgment against the Philistine in a number of different ways. And then last, God rewards and refreshes Samson after his faithful service. So three movements in these two chapters. First, that God will call Samson in the ministry. Now, ironically, Jesus began his ministry at a wedding feast, and so does Samson. Look with me at verses 1, 2, and 3. Samson went down to Timnon. At Timnon, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah to get her for me as a wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives or among the people that you may go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? Now, we look at this and we quickly see that he's, that he's rude, that he's sharp. Now, if he's a womanizer, if he's a rogue, he's not going to involve his parents. He's following tradition. He's following custom. He involves his parents. He wants his parents to approve, to see this marriage as legit. The parents obviously take question over the initial move, right? They say, is there no one in your family that, to whom you can marry? Is there no one in the tribe of Dan to whom you can marry? I think the shock was the parents were the ones that saw the angel, the angel who was Yahweh, who said, your child is going to save Israel from the Philistines. So they're thinking, well, if he's going to save us from the Philistine, why in the world is he marrying a Philistine? So it's natural for them to question it. We don't have to wait long for the answer. Look with me at 4. In verse 4 he says, but Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she's right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord. For he, that is the Lord, that's the closest antecedent, for he, the Lord, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. So what you have here, he gives reasons why he's doing what would seem to be contrary. He says, she's right in my eyes. Now to say she's right in her eyes, that Hebrew word means she's upright, she's moral, she's straight. Now, some authors want to say, well, hold it now, in 17.6, every man did that which was right in his own eyes. In other words, it's, it's kind of used as an excuse to just do what you want to do, but that's an assumption. I mean, the word itself means moral and upright. She is right in my eyes, and then immediately follows, this is from the Lord. The Lord's directing him. He's the judge appointed by God to bring judgment on the Philistines, and he's moving. That's where I think you get that sharper language of go get her for me as a wife. He's acting as a judge. He's been called of God. This is from the Lord. That's really the hermeneutical key. You have to understand through verse 4 that Samson is on mission for God as a judge. And you see that his parents go down with him. So they did approve. They did follow suit. But it was on the way to the wedding that we had this little encounter. Look in 5 to 7 with me. Samson went down with his father and mother to Timnah, and they came to the vineyards of Timnah. And behold, a young lion came toward him roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, 
He tore the lion to pieces as one tears a young goat, but he did not tell his father or mother what he had done. So here he is going down to propose to bring forth this marriage with this woman, and he meets a young lion. Not a good scene. It's roaring. Not a good sound. He has no weapon in his hands. The spirit rushes upon him. He tears it apart like a young goat. Now what's, what's going on here? Well, God is conferring upon him. He is giving him a preview. As you tear the lion apart, so you will tear Philistines apart. He did the same thing with Gideon. He let Gideon see what God was up to. So God giving him his spirit to tear apart that lion is confirming to him, your judgeship is beginning. Now do what you've been called to do and bring judgment to the Philistines. You know, it's interesting that when David stands before King Saul and he is preparing himself to go fight the King Kong of the Philistines, Goliath. You know what he refers to? He says, I've killed the lion with my hands. What's he drawing from? He's drawing from Samson. He's saying as Samson was confirmed as a judge by tearing apart the lion, so I am being confirmed as one who can kill the Philistines just like Samson. Now, why didn't he tell his father and mother? Well, you're going to see that in the riddle. He did not want them to see and know the answer for the pressure that his wife was on for knowing the riddle. So that's the first scene. He goes down, tears the line apart. It evidences God's spirit upon him. He now understands what has been conferred upon him by his parents. This is what the angel said about you. Now he sees the spirit of God move on him in such a way that he tears the line apart. He knows he's judged. So so God calls him into ministry by the power of the Spirit, and then God uses him in ministry. Now, this is where we get the riddle. They go down, and as you heard, uh, they give him 30 companions. This wasn't make a friend day. Uh, most scholars think that giving him responsibility of 30 companions is trying to bankrupt him or trying to take his inheritance. Remember now, as we're going to see in 17 and 18 of Judges, the tribe of Dan had left their territory. Timnah was part of Israel. Now, the Philistines had occupied it, but it was part of the Danite allotment of land. They left it, went north, and displaced another part of Israel. And so scholars think that they were trying to take. They didn't just occupy the land. They wanted to take back God's land that he had given to his people. And so he brings forth this riddle as a means of judgment. Now, you know the stakes are high because when they can't get him. Now, why did they, by the way, why did they accept the riddle? I mean, how would they have known the answer to that? Well, I think it was they figured they'd get him drunk. You know, that is the ancient truth serum. People say what they're thinking when they've had too much to drink. They say things that they wish they hadn't have said, but it's not that they hadn't thought it. But he was a Nazarite, and he didn't drink. And so within three days, they figure, we got a problem. They turn to the wife, and they threaten her. So you know, they even say, have you brought him here to impoverish us? So you know it's a bankruptcy. He's bringing economic judgment on them. Of course, they wear her down. She wears him down. She gets him to give her the answer. They then explain the riddle. And so Samson goes to them, if you had not plowed with my heifer, now, just a personal note, if you're going to pick an animal as a, maybe a metaphor for your wife, you might want fawn, deer, something a little more graceful rather than a heifer. Uh, but but he, he says, if you hadn't plowed with my heifer, you wouldn't answer my riddle. 
And then, of course, what happens is he goes to Ashkelon, which is one of the five great cities of the Philistines, and he kills 30 of their men and takes the spoil. Now, people say this is an example of his roid rage. I mean, the guy's out of control. He's popping off, just going down to another town, killing 30 people. Remember what he's doing here. He's beginning deliverance for the Philistines. What he does is he goes down to Ashkelon, kills 30 men, takes all their profit, and hauls it up to another Philistine town, Timnah. What do you have here? Now you've got some civil war baking. You have the Philistines going against the Philistine. You took this from me. I took that from you. But it was the Spirit of God that did it. So God came upon him to bring judgment to these Philistines. Now, when that is finished, he comes back to claim his wife. He brings a goat. Another personal note, flowers might be appropriate. He brings a goat. He finds that she's been given away. And so what he does is he ties 300. The word can be translated foxes. Maybe it's jackals. Jackals travel in packs. Foxes don't usually. But he ties 300 of their tails together and puts torches between them. What he's doing is he's going to set ablaze all their standing grain, their orchards, and their vineyards. So he's bringing judgment on their production. The Philistines were, were great in drinking. He's bringing He's bringing judgment upon all their fields and their vineyards and their orchards. They then turn and burn the wife and the father-in-law to death. Then we find him in that cleft at Edom. We didn't read that. He went to, a, like Elijah before, he went to a cleft at Edom. The men of Israel, so now the men of Judah go to him, 3,000 strong, and say, come on, you got to surrender to the Philistines, and they, of course, uh, he, like Ehud before, sees another opportunity to carry out his role to bring judgment to the Philistines. So he allows himself to be bound, and then here's what we read. It says, um, when he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting at him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him. That's the third time now the Spirit comes upon him in his bringing judgment to the Philistines. The ropes that were on his arms became as flax that had caught fire and his bonds melted off his hands. And then he took the, it says, the fresh jawbone. What is that? Well, fresh jawbone probably indicates that it still had teeth in it. It wasn't one of those old things you see on some prairie long ago, just, just the jawbone, but it probably had teeth on it. because It was fresh, it was new, be a formidable weapon. The Spirit of God takes Samson and he kills a thousand men with the jawbone. So here you have this picture of Samson being called in ministry, given the Spirit, affirming to him, you will destroy, you will bring judgment on the Philistines, and then you have him execute judgment on them in all these different contexts. Then the final scene we see is that God rewards, refreshes him. You see this in 17 to 20 of chapter 5. He says, as soon as he had finished speaking, he threw away the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramath-Lehi, or literally Jawbone Hill. He was very thirsty, called upon the Lord, and he says, you have granted this great salvation by your servant. And shall I now die of thirst and fall into the hands of the uncircumcised? 
And God split open the hollow place that is at Lehi, and water came from it. And when he drank, his spirit returned, and he revived. He judged Israel in the days of the Philistine 20 years. You see how, what Samson's doing? How does Samson look at the events of chapters 14 and 15? He says to God, you have granted this salvation. You did it through the hand of your servant, but you did it. He gives God all the credit for the victories that he had over all the Philistines. He sees himself as a servant of God, and God has done what God promised to do in chapter 13, 5 and chapter 14, 4. And then notice how God responds. He brings forth water out of this rock. I mean, think about that. Moses before, he nourished the people through the water that came out of the rock. Or, or think about not just Moses, but think about Elijah. Elijah said, am I going to starve to death? And God feeds and sustains him. Think about Jesus in the wilderness. The angels come and minister, caring for him. You see God caring for his servant. So when you look at these two chapters of Samson, you see that he's been called of God in accordance with 13.5 and 14.4. He then brings judgment to these Philistines, a wicked people who are you know, opposed to God, and, and then we see God care for him and nourish him. So what do we do with this story? I mean, you're sitting there thinking it's fantastical. I mean, what do we do with this? Well, of course, we haven't been talking about the judges. We've been talking about God. And I want to inform you about the good nature of God. I want you to be overwhelmed with God and how he would do and what he's doing here, that you would love him more. So let me give you five takeaways here. Uh, the first thing I think you see is that God's ways of saving are inscrutable. That They're beyond tracing out. I mean, you see this in the context of him, you know, his parents. Can you imagine the surprise? We've been told that you're going to kill Philistines and deliver. Like all the other judges, think of, think of all the judges and all the enemies they put to flight and put to the edge of the sword. And here you're going to take care of the Philistine oppression, and yet you marry one. You know, God does things that will often confound us. You know, when you consider this, it's almost really told in a humorous way, isn't it? I mean, it kind of is a, a humorous story. You, you know, when I'm going through it, I can see some of you kind of smiling at, hey, this is so crazy. But think about these Philistines. They cheat the answer, and yet they pay the consequences. You know, they, they go ahead and try to give the wife away, and yet they lose all their grain and orchards. You know, they, they burn the wife and the father-in-law, and they lose thousands of men. It's as if Samson is playing with them. I mean, they're bungling stooges, not knowing what they're doing. Why, why does God do it this way? You know, why, why does God make them a laughingstock? I mean, think about it. the great Philistine army defeated by foxes and the jawbone of a donkey. He's doing it to remind us, you don't want to be an enemy of Yahweh. You don't want to be opposing God. You don't want to be standing against a God who can toy with his enemies, who laughs at those who make war against him in Psalm 2. He laughs at him. Now listen, there's many things that you and I may be fearing in this life. Maybe health crises. 
It may be governmental intrusion. It may be COVID. It may be the cultural decline. It may be what's going to happen to your children. A lot of things we fear. But Jesus tells us clearly, he says, don't fear the one who can kill the body. You fear the one who can kill the body and the soul. We see this played out in the disciples' life. You know, when they're in the boat crossing the Sea of Galilee and the storm comes on, it says they feared for their life. And these were expert fishermen. They're in a storm. They don't think they're going to make it out. They cry to Jesus. They wake him up. He calms the storm. And then in Greek, it says they feared a great fear. So in Greek, when they repeat words, it's often for purposes of emphasis. They now are really scared, not of the sea outside, but of the man inside the boat. That, that we want to we fear God. You know, when Manoah and his wife understood they stood before God, what did they do? They fell down. They thought they were going to die. We need a healthy fear of God. We need to begin to remember that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of God. That we have to take the fears that you may be struggling with and put them against who this God is, who is your Father. You know, for the Christian, we don't need to be frightful, but we do need to be reverential to God. We need to gain that fear back. You know, as David prayed, uh, even that we would not be so ambivalent to God's commands, or as we sung in Smitten, when we said, don't think too lightly of sin. We, we want to be respectful and fear God. We want to pray for that. You know, in Psalm 86, 11, he says, unite my heart that I may fear your name. Don't let me fear these other things that are bidding for my attention. Let me fear your name. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, this is what we talk about making peace with God. That you do not want to be on the other side of the table from God. That is not a place to be. You want God to be a friend. You want your relationship reconciled with God. And that only comes through faith in his son. So it's the first lesson we see that God saves in unique ways. And secondly, God saves using lights in darkness. He uses servants of light in cultures of darkness. That's how he does it. Now this is where I want to get to Samson. You know, because so many want to look at Samson, they say, but I've always heard that he was a womanizer and he was angry and he disobeyed God. He was the epitome of Israel gone bad. Now, and, and then preachers, and you'll see them all over, if you Google any sermon, that's probably 90% of what you're going to hear, 95% of what you're going to hear. And then generally what they say is, see, God can even use misfits like Samson, he can use you too. And now that's a true principle, I believe that principle, I don't think it applies here. I, there's nothing said negative about Samson in all the scriptures, and yet we're quick to bring up all kinds of negativity to him. So you say, yeah, but there's problems, Tom. He did marry outside of the nation of Israel. Well, let me explain that. There is nothing in the scriptures that prohibit him from marrying a Philistine. The nations named in Judges 3 as to whom they should not marry, Philistine is not in them. Philistine as a nation came into Israel from the west, from Greece. And they came probably at the same time that Israel came in from the east. They're not named among those nations. But not only that, interracial marriage in the scriptures is never prohibited. Interfaith marriages are. Those lovers of Yahweh and lovers of idolatry, that's prohibited. 
But interracial marriage, you have Moses and Zipporah, you have Ruth and Boaz, she's a Moabite, for, and she's in the line of the Lord. Uh, and not only that, but he says that she was right in his eyes, that she was a righteous woman. And, and you think, well, yeah, but surely there was somebody in the tribe of Dan that he could have married. But remember, in 17 and 18, Dan moved north. And not only that, but they were idolaters, as we're going to see in just a few weeks. So we don't know that he sinned by marrying this Philistine. And number two, you say, yeah, but, but he drank wine. He broke his Nazarite vows. Well, it says that he threw a wedding feast. That doesn't mean he was drinking wine. I've been to countless marriages where the mother and father who provide wine and beer for their guests don't drink. But they do it as an act of kindness to their guests. That doesn't mean they're drinking. He's drinking. To assume that he's a drunkard or a womanizer from these things is a big stretch. And you say, yeah, 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 but maybe, maybe not that. But look at him. He's eating out of the dead carcass, and Nazarite was not to touch anything dead. We'll go back and look at Numbers 6, verses 6 and 7. It says no one can touch a dead body. And then immediately he says, like, father, mother, brother, sister. He didn't say you can't touch a dead animal. Think about that for a minute. And Nazarite wasn't a vegetarian. They would kill an animal, so it became a dead carcass, and then they would eat it, or they would bring it. Nobody could celebrate Passover. How about all the priests? They're touching dead carcasses all over the place. Now you say, well, they were, they were clean animals. But porpoise skins, which is an unclean animal, was used over the Holy of Holies. You can't eat a porpoise without being unclean, but you can touch it. Because anything that is killed by your hand is clean to you. Samson couldn't eat the lion, but he could use the lion or the leather of the lion. So he wasn't made unclean by taking the honey out of the carcass. So you say, well, what about his temper? And what about his anger? He's popping off, killing all these people with all kinds of stuff. Well, you heard me. Each time the spirit rushes upon him, and then he executes the judgment that he was called to do for the people uh, to deliver the people of Israel from the Philistines. Now, all I mean to do by this, I don't get points if I convince you Samson's not a monster. I'm just trying to say that I think we assume much about Samson that isn't supported in the scripture. Hebrews 11 holds him up. I think he's a hero. I think he's the climactic judge, as we're going to see next week, when he prefigures Christ in laying down his life. He's a hero. But I want us to be warned that, that we want to be careful of making judgments of people, as has been made of Samson. You know, my old professor used to say, a lot of people are going to be embarrassed when they get to that wedding feast of the Lamb. Nobody will want to sit by Samson because of all that they've said. So we want to be careful. You know, when we talk about one another, when you look at one another, in your lives and you observe what people do or what people say, we can quickly take 90% of truth and come up with 100% of false because you're missing some elements. So we want to be, because when we judge or we assume things of one another, we sure do run the risk of really offending people and hurting our relationship. So I, I do think we can learn a lot by being careful on making assumptions of others. And then thirdly, I think there's a warning here that God's warning us about, about accommodation to culture. If you notice, every other time that the judge has come to the scene, the people have been groaning for help. They've been crying out to God for help. Not so here. 
Did you notice they did not cry out for help? Why? They've become accommodated. They've assimilated into the culture. Think about the 3,000 men of Judah who came to Samson and said, hey, you got to surrender to the Philistines. Look at 1511 with me. He says, don't you know that these Philistines are rulers over us? What then is that you have done to us? Do you understand the twisted logic of this? Here are the people of God who God has raised up a judge for, and they ask the question, don't you know they're rulers over us? The enemies of God, they are now assuming, are rightful lords. And they're rejecting the one that God has appointed to save them. In fact, they're asking him to surrender to the enemy. God's raised him up to judge. You know, the greatest threat to the church has always historically, it's never come from pressure outside. It's not governments, it's not threats, it's not atheists, it's not pagan. The greatest threat to the church has always come from assimilation, accommodation to culture, where the lines between the church and the culture are blurred. And so here we find ourselves in a time where where life seems to be, the winds are blowing against the church and blowing against people of faith a little bit. You, You know what, I don't look for trouble But I do think that the times we're in is going to help us define the line between the Christian and the world. That's what we're fasting for this week, as you're going to hear. We are fasting that we as a church might be salt and light, that we may be lights, Paul says in Philippians, that we may be lights in a crooked and depraved generation. That for so long the church has always climbed into bed with the culture or climbed into bed with the government, and now the separation can be a very healthy thing to understand. Who's one of his and who's not? So I think there's a warning against cultural accommodation. And then fourth, you see clearly that God does his greatest work through his spirit. Samson may have been 5'2 and 104 pounds. We don't know. We have him in the videos as Tarzan and all buff and all, you know, big weightlifter running around killing people. He may have been a very short, small man. But when the spirit of God gets a hold of him, then he does what God calls him to do. You see it in Saul, you see it in David, the Spirit rushes upon them, they do God's work. You see in Zechariah, it's not by might, not by power, but by my Spirit, says the Lord. So God advances his plan always by the power of his Spirit. It's not resting on your strength or your gifts. He may use those things, but he doesn't rest on those things. This is why Jesus was full of the Spirit. And Jesus tells his apostles, don't do anything, you wait till you receive power from on high. In Acts 1.8, you'll receive the power of the Holy Spirit, and then you'll be my witnesses. So the Spirit of God is necessary for every single one of us here to do anything that advances God's kingdom. It is by God's Spirit. That's why Paul says in Ephesians 5.18, be filled with the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit. And this is why Jesus Christ himself encourages us to seek. How often do you pray? that you would be filled with the Spirit to do what you can't do. How often do you, last week, last month? So Jesus says in Luke 11, he says, um, if your son asks for bread, will you give him a stone? If, if he asks for a fish, will you give him a snake? Now, of course, any parent here, you don't even have to be a parent, say, of course I wouldn't do that. <clears throat> so Jesus says, well, if you, though evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much, more will the Holy, how much more will your Father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? Before I get up and preach every single Sunday, I say, God, fill me 
with your spirit. If, if you don't fill me with your spirit, and if the word isn't preached by the power of the spirit, it will do you do no good. I don't care how funny, eloquent, how clear the explanation is. The spirit of God has to advance the plan of God. That's what we see in Samson. That's what you and I, that's why we can be useful in God's kingdom. Even though you've written yourself out of the script, write yourself back in because it's by the Spirit of God. And then, and then last thing we learn is that Samson, or God, is preparing us to see a better Savior. Samson is a prefigurement of Christ. We've seen all the parallels. Miraculous birth, angelic announcement, even down to being full of the Spirit, both misunderstood by their parents, both rejected by their people. The list goes on and on. They tell parables to obscure truth. Inaugurated ministry at wedding feast. Um, betrayal by an intimate friend. Fights as a solo champion. Forsaken of God at the end. Ironic victory and defeat. Saves his people by death. All those parallels. Samson is preparing us for a, a perfect savior. What Samson did is he delivered them from outside oppression. But he was unique in that he fought alone. All the other judges rallied the tribes of Israel. Samson didn't. He fights alone as the last judge. Jesus comes as the last judge, and he fights alone. And he delivers us, not from the outside oppression. He delivers us from our own sin so that we might be made right with God. I mean, Jesus is that solo champion for us. And you see how God, he raises up the Abrahams, the Moses, the Joshua, the Samsons, the David. He keeps showing us, my, my bringing forth a son wasn't a knee-jerk reaction to problems that I couldn't get. God had always planned to bring forth a perfect Savior, a last judge, to deliver us. It's incredible how God has gone to such intimate detail to let us know he loves and desires to save sinners. Sinners that we run from, people that we avoid, we look down, cross the hall, do a, he comes to save. God's mercy is beyond measure. It, it really warrants you and I just sometimes just sitting and pondering how kind he is to us. And so here we have a book as kind of cryptic as judges, and it's just screaming for, when will you send us a deliverer? And he has in Jesus Christ, one who is mighty to save. So let's take a moment and just worship God right now and ask him for a greater understanding and love. Filling your mind with the truth of these things is one thing, but seeing you transformed into greater worshipers is the point. And then I'll pray for us in just a moment.